All right, here we are, live from the Minnesota Muskie Expo. Brad, we've done this once before, and uh, I don't know, I'd consider it to be a moderate success, I would say. We had people that were interested in having us do it again, so here we are. We're going to do this back-to-back -back weeks. Next week, we'll be at the uh, Wausau Muskie Expo, and we'll do that on Friday night. Whether Brad's there or not, I don't know, I'll, I'll find a suitable replacement if Brad isn't there, which at this point, you know, I'm going to assume he's not going to be there. Hey, look at this. We're going to have a couple extra guides. So anyways, Brad, we have a handful of guides here. We have Matt Seifert, we have uh, Van Mortal, Austin Wiggerman, Michael Hansen, Luke Swanson is here. Uh, looks like we're going to get Herbie here at some point. And, but first we're going to talk to the Rosemount fishing team. I guess these guys are somewhat fans of the podcast and uh, they wanted us to uh, have them on, talk about their fishing, th their fishing team because, you know, fishing youth, fishing is very important to the sport very important to our future and so guys want first off why don't you talk a little bit about your club how long you guys been involved in a club uh, we, I've been in the club for about two and a half years um, this is my third season uh, I pretty much got into the club because um, the coach is a teacher at the Rosemont Middle School so I have been talking with him and we talk about fishing a lot and it's just nice to kind of have a way to like fish with other people from my school in my area while like still having the fun of fishing because I mean yeah and it's a great experience I'd highly recommend getting in a team if you have one in your area because it's always great to you know branch out and find different ways to you know fish and take it to the next level I've been in the club for maybe two or three years and I joined because I really like bass fishing and then I wanted to meet some people to fish with and do tournaments. I'm also really into musky fishing so I like to do some musky tournaments too. And last but not least it's your turn. Why did you get involved in this club? Well uh, last year I just saw like a like I guess an email that got sent out and I was like I didn't know there was a fishing team for Rosemount. So I joined. It's my second year this year and it's been great through every tournament I've done. I met this guy through one of the fundraisers we were doing and ever since we have done a couple of musky fishing tournaments around the metro and we even made it to the state musky tournament last year. At Lake Vermilion. Yep. Excellent. So obviously, you know, youth is super important in our, in our fisheries. It's great to see that they have this stuff. Brad, I'm guessing you didn't have any of this available when you were young. No, I didn't. I was very fortunate, though. I did a bunch of bass fishing tournaments when I was uh, in high school still, middle school. And uh, from there, it elevated to the walleye tournament scene. And, uh, as of course, now today, it's the muskie thing. And I think what it is is it's a really good foundation. When you get youth involved in fishing, it elevates. And it's really cool to see three young guys here that are actually into the muskie world already at this young age. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing, Brad, if we got to mention is there's actually a crowd here in Minnesota. Like, in, when we did this in Milwaukee, there was nobody here. It was like crickets, you know. And it's good to see that, you know, some people decided to come out. We have at least seven, eight loyal supporters. See, so I was right. We have eight loyal listeners to our podcast. So I'm glad we had them out here tonight. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, this is kind of what we were hoping would happen in Milwaukee. And uh, guess what? It's happening here in Minnesota. It's really cool to have all the, the people involved, that's for sure. All right, guys. So if youth are looking to get involved in a club, 
you guys have a website people want to check out your club you guys can or a Facebook page or anything uh, Rosemount fishing team on Facebook we post every like thing that we go to all the fundraisers and different events uh, you can show up to those and you can talk because Jeremy Abbott the leader normally is always there so you can talk to him and he'll, he'll be glad to get you into the fishing team he's always glad to help uh, newer fishermen of any skill level uh, get into the fishing world competitively and it's just great to see I mean he really helped me in my fishing uh. hey it's great that you guys are out here we really appreciate you guys coming out I, I'm assuming you guys must listen to the podcast, and if so, we want to thank you for that. All right, Brad, so let's see here. We have a handful of guides, and we got a handful of people here. I know I could reach into my pocket, grab my phone, because I have a Facebook post with some questions, but somebody, somebody here has to want to start a question. Who's going to be the brave person that's going to come up and ask a question? Why don't, you, uh, why don't you grab the microphone here from Brad quick, or whisper it in Brad's ear, however you want to do it. So what, what do you want to learn today from our panel of guides? Fishing turnover. Uh, most of the time when we are fishing, it is in turnover, when we're up north anyways. Uh, so cold water and fishing turnover. So let's see here. Michael, Michael Hansen, why don't we start with you? you uh, so he wants to know more about fishing turnover and cold water. Why don't we start with you? What what kind of tips can you offer up for fishing turnover or cold water, other than go home and go on a river? <laughs> well, obviously I'm from northern Wisconsin, so we're always running suckers during that time period. But um, I'm slowing it down with big, big rubbers. Um, you know, I'm what I most do from open to close is ripping rubbers as hard as I possibly can. But I'm slowing it down. I'm doing longer sweeps with the rod anywhere from four to six foot sweeps, keeping the slack out of the line, winding down tight to the bait to keep it from going down too far and being too erratic, and uh, just kind of keeping it in that strike zone. All right, who are we gonna go to next? If we give it to Seifert, we might never get the microphone back, so maybe we should head off a different direction. Let's go to Luke here first. Okay. Luke, why don't you, first off, why don't you talk, talk about your name, talk about where you guide, because I know that was one thing when we did the podcast live the last time, People weren't exactly sure who we were talking to, so why don't you kind of briefly go over that for a minute? Uh, we are gonna now. <laughs> we are gonna talk about cold front fishing. Same same thing we talked with Michael Hansen. You got tips to help for uh, cold front or yeah turnover fishing, cold colder water turnover. Awesome. Well, I'm Luke Swanson. I'm up from the Brainerd Leech Lake area, and during that turnover time, we have a bunch of different lakes that we can switch to to try to get away from that turnover. Um, but we also have the Mississippi River, and I'd rather jump on the river because when it's turnover everywhere, everywhere struggling, and I can jump on a river or a reservoir to get away from that and to be able to fish that area. And we'll like that time of year, we'll have eelgrass let go too, and you'll have problems with that. But there's still sections you can go and fish and still be, you know plenty fine with that see now luke cheated he went right to the rivers i said with michael he couldn't go to a river so i let luke go right to a river that's the easiest way to avoid turnover and i've said it on the podcast before jump onto a river you're good to go yeah and i, th I think it's not only rivers but you can go to a different size body of water as well every body of water is going to change temp at a different time and so it's definitely something that you want to consider as well how about herbie you got some tips i mean you've only been fishing these things for a couple seasons so you're pretty new to this but maybe we can get a little bit out of the you. river. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, usually around turnover time, I'm usually either up north or just just heading to Canada. So um, 
the systems that I fish up in Canada are so multidimensional that I can make a change. You know, and I, I actually look for a lot of windswept stuff. The more windswept a, a section of the lake I can fish during turnover, the better I feel that, you know, that I've, you know, the lake has kind of done its thing. Um, shallower, deeper, shallower, more windswept parts of the lake seem to turn over quicker. Um, so I look for that, and then I and then I like the narrows coming out of those big windswept areas because the fish are starting to do a lot of migrating. Um, in northern Wisconsin, I actually, when it comes turnover time, I, I really don't go to the smaller, shallower lakes looking for stuff that's turned over. I actually fish the deeper lakes and look and look for stuff that's uh, not quite there yet. And to be honest, there's a lot of lakes that turnover really doesn't even affect. The really deeper, clear, two-story lakes, a lot of times they actually start turning on then. They really aren't, I think people a lot of times use turnover as an excuse why they're not finding fish. And the problem with it is, is they can push push up real shallow, they could push out break, but generally I like to stay from the breaks up shallower uh, as my first choice of uh, patterns at turnover time. But I look for where fish move a lot and moving through, and I look for areas of the lake that'll turn over quicker than other sections of the lake. I think, I think one of the things that Herbie just mentioned there too is that the whole lake doesn't flop at the same time. And so there's different sections in that lake that you can still fish effectively. So that's something to consider. All right, Seifert, you're up, but you, you're gonna. I'm gonna put the stopwatch on you though, because I know how you go. We've had this. We've had this experience before. You get that microphone. We aren't getting it back. I'm good. I'll make it short. No, you don't have to be short. Is this on? Am I talking here? Oh, no, it's not actually. Now it is. All right. So we got a blank spot He's there, but we're good to go. <laughs> so, and, Sorry, I just got a scolding by Jeff here. Yep. No, they, heard, they heard that part. They heard the scolding. They didn't hear your response. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, I'm here now. Uh, my name is Matt Seifert. I guide Minnesota. Uh, turnover, I don't know. I, we could talk about baits. I guess on the bigger licks, like vermilion, leech, where I usually guide, I like the shallower mud is where I usually go. Kirby just kind of touched on it. The neck down areas, um, fish will migrate through there, and then that water will get colder faster, and so I'll push the ciscos and whitefish into shallow mud to eat bugs that they haven't got to all year because the water was too warm in there. So that's been one of my top turnover keys, like targeting that 12 to 20 foot mud that those ciscos have been stuck down in 30 to 50 feet all summer eating bugs and they couldn't go into that shallower water. So is that good enough or what? No, it was actually a little too short, I thought, to tell you the truth. Oh. I didn't expect that out of you. I was, okay. I was looking to get it like about well, the 12 minute mark. Should I keep talking or not? Yeah, if you could. Uh, so yeah, troll those areas, especially the windblown <laughs> parts. Um, I like, weird baits i mean you troll with i usually troll with supernatural big baits but i've done really good on beaver baits and turnover um waiting my bucktails getting down a little bit lower if the fish are being lazy but uh that's about it done good on globes too i'm gonna move it on to somebody else here vander mortal why don't we get you involved here let's uh and we haven't heard from you yet let's let let's let uh you weigh in on the topic uh yeah for turnover i think the all the magical points have been hit for sure I mean, if you can switch lakes, switch. Go either really big or really small. Try to avoid turnover at all turnover at all costs. Um, if you are stuck on a system, focusing on the neck downs is a good way. Up in my neck of the woods, it would be something like, you know, say you're on like the Eagle River or Three Lakes chain. Fishing on the thoroughfare areas of, of a body of water can be a really good way to avoid it too. Um, as Steve mentioned and others, 
places that don't stratify, that do not have a thermocline, those are the best places in the lake to target. If you have current or any sort of food gathering there, all the better. All right, I think Brad's hoping to round up another question. Anybody else? I know Brad's, Brad's talking over here to somebody. Somebody else got a question? Anybody else w willing to step up? I can see it over here. I can see you want to ask a question. I know you do. We got it. We got a question. All right, perfect. Okay, so we go to Lake Winnebagosh in the fall, in October, and I have had a follow a couple times now. She's 50 inches plus for sure, low, slow, lazy. She followed in on a swim bait, and she just kind of veered off and went back to the weed bed where she was at. What is the best way to come back at her? How long should I wait? What Should I switch a bait? Should I go back with what she followed on? I, I'm not sure what what to do in that situation. You know what, Brad? I got to say that if we ever need a new co-host or a new host, she can do it. There was no ums, no ahs, no hesitation. She got right after it. So looks like I'm not needed around here anymore. Yeah, and she was a little hesitant to actually ask the question, but she did great. Well, that was great. Um, who, we, who do we want to pick out first? Herbie, you want to get after it? Oh yeah. Um, okay, so if a fish just comes in slow and lazy to me, I usually don't mess with them much at all. I I make you know make a note of where it is, and try and come back you know like uh, at any time there's a wind shift or a moon phase or or whatever I can find it's something different. Big fish are are, uh, are 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 fish of change you know and 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 it's becoming more and more evident to me the last five or six years especially that that these really big fish like you're talking about it's probably a 15 to 25 year old fish we're actually creating almost a super breed of fish 30 years ago these fish were thumped and killed and now these fish are being all let go and some of these fish that are the size of you have probably been caught once two three times and then even through the genetic portion of that moving forward spawning i think we're i think this is why we got to always be coming up with new baits and new techniques and getting smarter because these fish are getting smarter so when i see a fish that isn't super hot i leave it alone as all i'm doing is educating it more i totally leave it alone and come back when i think it's prime time it's a type of a change coming whether it's daylight to darkness which is obviously one of my favorites or a moonrise or moonset or anything like that anything that i can find a change a front coming direction in direction change too. yep anything but a fish that's lazy i usually don't mess with if a fish that flies in hard and hot and and screaming i'll usually try it again so all right brad which way we want to go we want to go to michael over here I don't remember the order we did last here. We had no order. It was like a star, I think. Michael Hansen. My, hold on one second. We got Michael Hansen for those of you that uh, are just joining in on our podcast and people here in attendance, but also, you know, for people listening, they didn't necessarily know last episode who they were all talking to when we did this live thing because we were kind of passing the microphone around. So, Michael, what do you got to offer up? You know, it depends on the time of the year, but at least where I'm from, I know that you can't do this in Minnesota, so it's not really going to answer your question. But what I would do is get any sort of live bait. If that fish is in a negative mood, whether it be a legal pike or uh, whatever, a sucker, if you can catch one of those, I'd drag that thing over it immediately, see what it's doing. Um, but other than that, I would go back to it at a low light time. Uh, nighttime is always a great time to chase those finicky fish from what I've always understood, and uh, or not understood, but what I've noticed, excuse me. But um, live bait, if you can, 
is going to be a good tool to use, otherwise low light conditions at all times. All right, Luke Swanson, you want to weigh in? Yeah, so what I would say f with that is I'm in Florida half the year, and that's like a 95% live bait fishery where I would rather have two 10-inch suckers, since you're in Minnesota and we can't catch it like Michael would say, two 10-inch suckers that are just in the live well at all times. Um, and you find that fish, if it's that big and that's the only fish you want to catch, sit on that fish and let the bobber live there the rest of the day and hit spot lock. Um, and just having that live bait background of always being in Florida and those fish want live bait. There's bait all over the place. That fish is like Herbie said has been caught. That fish may have seen everything and putting a live sucker right in front of their face and just letting it soak there coming back at late early light late in the day moon phases anything like that but having live bait in the boat even in the summertime that you know that big one is there to be able to spend your time if that's just the one fish you want with that live bait. Yeah we'll, we'll get you in on this we'll get JVR and no, no, Either ahead. one. We'll keep the Jeff, why don't you get going and we'll just keep going this way. Okay, sounds good. So when you're, when you're going after one specific big fish, like you mentioned, I mean, if it's a fish you've seen multiple times, you see it multiple times a day, um, you know that fish is living there. Obviously coming back in some sort of a weather change, low light, particularly like that early fall period, that first dark period can be huge. Anytime in the summer too, but in particular in the fall, look for something like that for a change. What often, I get a little bit spoiled or just maybe it's just because I've been burned so many times on a big fish coming out where we just never see it again. And in the last couple of years, especially with really good electronics now and you start to watch this stuff, something like forward imaging or any of that stuff or where you see these fish in live time, come in, follow your bait, either go back where they came from or swim under the boat and just disappear never to be seen again. You know, think about that action from that one fish and use it as a, a key as to what's going on in the system, especially if that's like the first fish you've seen in three hours of fishing. Now you move to fish, and a lot of times when you do get a good window that opens up, it's move to fish, lazy, maybe another lazy follow or a hot follow, then you get a bit, then you catch a fish, then you another follow, and then you don't see anything for four hours a lot of times. So, you know, try to, if you have other spots to go with equally good chances at big fish, it can often, oftentimes be, use that follow as an indicator of maybe a ramping up in the window uh, of other fish biting. But if you've got one fish on that spot, coming back or, or camping out like Luke said is a great idea especially with live bait but honestly you just have to come back when that fish is ready to eat and that's really all there is to it any kind of change in the conditions or moon or first dark all right Jeff why don't you pass it on over here and why don't you introduce yourself we haven't heard from you yet today in fact I don't even I don't even know your name to tell you the truth <laughs> Dave Shuick I'm with Sunset Glow Guide Service up on Lake Vermilion so Matt and I fish a bunch of the same water uh, on on those kinds of fish like that, we don't um, we don't really get the luxury of using the live bait on Vermilion just because they don't really like suckers up there. Uh, we've tried it. I haven't had a sucker in my live well up there in a, in years, right? So uh, I'm always going back on those fish if they're hot, right? As Herbie said, I think if they come in low and they're slow and they're just five feet behind the bait and I barely see a shadow, they're interested, just curious, but then. I might not come back to them for a day when there's a change, right? Uh, if they come in real hot, I will go at them with different baits. I like to go at them with a thing like a whale tail where I can, I can put a soft bait in front of them, but I can jerk it, I can pause it, I can rip it, I can let it sink to the bottom, rip it to the top. I can do a lot of different actions on a whale tail. I like white whale tails on Vermilion. They have produced good for me up there. But. And I'm not sponsored by them. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Seifert. Um, yeah. So, a lazy fish like that is oh, same. I'm good with everybody else, right? So probably wait it out. You come back at night, 
if there's a storm coming, make sure I get back there. Um, but you said you were using a swim bait. Were you reeling it really slow and the fish came in lazy? That's, okay, that's your key right there. So your bait change has to make, you, you might want to try the fish one more time, but you don't want to educate them either. But a, a strong rip with longer pauses is a huge thing. If you were reeling really slow and the fish came in really slow, it might have just been your speed or your retrieve. You, are you going to get a reaction strike if you speed up? Does it need to be down fast and deep? That's something you, you might want to, if you're only there for a few days, you might have to take the gamble of educating that fish to find that out. So you can go slow and low at night when you come back, if it's after dark, but changing that bait to a fast something, if you reeled it in slow and the fish came in slow, that might be the, your answer right there. So going back and getting that higher speed maneuver, and then you're, what are you doing at the boat too? That's a huge thing on a big smart fish. Granted the windy fish don't get a lot of pressure, but you're coming, you got this big fish coming in. What did you do? Did you slow down when you saw the fish or how far away? Well, how was your figure eight? That's the hugest, I mean, the hugest. I was home teached. Um, <laughs> and, but, and this is live. I'm not editing that out. Yeah, so that's fine. Your, your that's home right. tautness is going to be right there. Yeah, it is. Home tautness all the way. <laughs> I really was homeschooled, so it's kind of embarrassing. Um, your mom doesn't but listen. Is, was your figure eight perfect? I mean, did you, when you saw that fish, did you slowly increase your speed the second you saw it out there? <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's that's a huge part of it. So watching your speed and you can't make mistakes on big fish like that. And it's a learning curve, and it's I'm still learning. I've been doing it for 20 years, but that's a huge part when you have a lazy fish come in. It's well, how was your retrieve? How was your figure eight? Was it perfect? Did you not move your shoulders? Did you speed up when you saw the fish? That's the things I'd be more worried about. You know, if you had a slow, lazy bait and you got a slow, lazy follow, that could be your answer right there. So, and I knew another guy was there in October and he was ripping medusas and bulldogs and he got a few bites and they bit really lazy, but at least they kind of grabbed it and they struggled in October there too, so. So yeah, I guess that's my. All right, we'll swing over to Austin Wiggerman. He wanted to lay a crack at this one as well. It's always fun going after Matt. You feel like the words have all been said, but no, no. In that situation, I, th I think, <laughs> I think he had a really good key there. He was looking at the other factors aside from going back at a change or somewhere along those lines. It was more reading the situation, right? And I think the only thing that came to my mind that basically hasn't been said is a lot of these fish have zones that they hang out in and then there could be a spot on that weed bed that might be further up the weed edge or, weed edge or uh, the best spot um, that maybe have the, the harshest break into the basin off of that weed bed that, that they actually feed off of. So if you had that fish come in multiple times or as uh, Matt had mentioned, just changing the speed, changing, reading the situation, that fish may just be feeding at the weed point that's further down that edge. There's studies that have been done that have been related to uh, pike and where they defecate, they don't eat, they hang out, you know, do their business here, but then when it's time to eat, they go and, and slide up a spot. And I've, I've got some experience with some smaller lakes where there's waypoints that I only catch fish off of, and I can see them down the edge for a ways, but none of those fish actually eat. That big fish, educated, going back at a change, of course, but she may just be feeding, pulling out into deep water, whatever it may be. That could be one addition to this that it's worth trying out. Austin said defecate on a podcast. I don't think we've ever had that before. I think we learned that he doesn't eat on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right. I think we got another question here, Jeff. We do. So, here you go, sir. So my question would be uh, about attacking new water. How do you attack new water, specifically big water? Um, you know, first time on a big lake, pretty overwhelming to look at. How do you, like, first attack that in big water? So we're going to attack new water. That was the question. Um, let's go the opposite way this time. Matt, Matt Seifert. <laughs> um, new water. I guess I would call everyone I know that's fished it before. That's first place I'd start. Uh, look at the maps. It's hard to get your hands on a paper map, but they're pretty, pretty awesome. If you can get a paper map, I like to look at the whole lake as a whole. I have to do that guiding some days, like zoom way out and just look at the whole lake sometimes with my head spinning, just to kind of get a layout of the land. Um, another thing, if you think you know the pattern, you've talked to enough people and you're like, oh, they're biting on the rocks, windblown shorelines, whatever. You got to know what the wind's been the last week. That's one of the big factors. Um, the best way to do it though, if it's a new lake, all kinds of structure, you don't know anybody. I like to troll. I don't, I'm not necessarily going to catch anything. If I went to cast, I'd probably put a spinnerbait on and just do the brake lines. I don't know cast. I don't fish there. Um, just, or a crankbait, something, check the shallows into the deeps, look for bait fish, and by trolling around with side imaging now with all the electronics we have, it's amazing how much you can cover and learn on the lake that fast, the whole time while looking for muskies on your side imaging, obviously. Um, any nice wind, you know, whatever looks good, start trying it. And another thing when I fish new water, if I can ever fish new water, I'd like to do it with three people. That gives you such an advantage. If you're by yourself, you're like, well, what am I doing out here? But if you got three people and you got a fast, medium, slow bait and a high, medium, low, like a fast top water, medium bucktail and a bulldog, you're covering multiple levels of water at different speeds and you can fish faster. Your boat's not going 0.6 anymore, it's going 1.1 with three people in the boat. So, but trolling for me, if I learn a new lake, I like, and by myself, I just troll. Even though I'm not gonna catch anything probably, because I know nothing about the lake and maybe lose a crankbait, but I can learn some stuff. So similar to Matt, like uh, Dave Shuick, uh, Sunset Glow Guide Service, I, I've done a lot with teaching kids uh, in the high school fishing world, and so when we talk about breaking down water at that level, I just I remind the kids, don't try to eat the elephant in one bite, right? So on Vermilion, for example, if you're going to go up there and fish, let's just say Big Bay. That's a big bay, right? But take a chunk of it, maybe a third of it. Look at that water depth, like Matt's saying. Try to get a good map. Look at those breakdowns. See what the wind's been doing the last few days. If I have a bunch of buddies that have fished a certain area, I definitely want to call them. Um, but then I'm I'm literally driving, just like all of you do. I don't. Sometimes I'll have a rod out. I should probably do that more, but uh, but you often don't catch anything when I'm doing it. But I'm studying that graph, and I'm going miles. Right. I'm I'm covering a ton of water looking at my structure that I think is going to be good based on what I saw on the map, what time of year it is, what the weather pattern's been doing, and then I just cover water with my graph. And I'm, I'll just mark, 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 and I'll come back and I'll look, especially if I see fish on side, then I'm going to come back and fish those fish. So that's how I attack it. But not the whole elephant in one bite. 
Uh, Jeff Vandermortel, WDH Guide Service. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's really. I mean, there's a it's a hard question to really answer multiple different ways. You know, break it up, take small parts, and uh, also spend your time out there wisely. I think the one thing I would add to what the previous two guys said is just make sure that the time you're spending scouting, you're spending it hopefully during an off period. Double check, see when your moon is, see what you got going for incoming weather, see what you got going. If you know you've been on the water other places, or you talk to other people that said they've been doing well, morning, evening, midday, whatever the case, the pattern may be. If you any information you can get try to not be scouting during those times. But the best way to do it, you know, again, try to get out there, use your time, maximize your time scouting. If you choose to troll while you do it, GPS the spots that look good. And the other thing in that, just don't get cute. Like if it looks good, it probably is good. You're not gonna necessarily reinvent and find the secondary tertiary or, you know, fourth and wrong spots there. Find the good spots, find what looks good. You know, you can always look for pan fishermen or other groups of stuff that gives away where like the community spots are typically, you're gonna have predator fish hanging around there, but Again, don't get cute and try not to burn your peak times with scouting. Try to scout when, at least when the paper says, on paper, it looks like a downtime. All right, Luke Swanson, Living the Dream Guide Service. I would set it up like I set up a hunt out west that I've never seen the landscape. You sit at your graph in your boat weeks before and I like putting waypoints on those spots. So when you get on the body of water, it's like, oh, what should we hit first? And you start on that waypoint, you look at it, and if it's trash, delete the waypoint. Don't go back to it. Go to the next one. So then your head is, you have a plan already. Just like out west, we want to get to this ridge so we can glass here, and I turn and burn as fast as possible. If there's a fish there you see on side imaging, fish that fish real quick, like you were, you were talking about moon phases, or if that fish is in a feeding location, um, fish it right away, and then come back to that if there, you see those fish later on in your trip. Um, but like those fish are, you know, 90% of the fish are in 10% of the water. Sp I'd rather spend half the day driving around and getting the research done to fish the rest of the half of the day in that 10% area for the 90% of those fish. Um, so I think the homework before and having that plan so you're not thinking while you're on the water and you have a plan and you can adjust when you get there and what you're seeing on the water about the plan you think you had if it was whatever time period in the fall or spring, summer, fall. Uh, DJ Chapita, Hinterland Muskie Guides um, out of northern Wisconsin. Uh, a lot of things have been said. I think the biggest thing I do is watch weather a couple days before, know your wind patterns, know sunlight, dark light. Uh, other big thing I've been doing lately is hummingbird zero lines cards. I know Jeff fish a lot of small lakes, not a lot of high resolution contour lines. I turn it on, I start driving, find something cool on sign imaging, mark it, and the whole time I'm laying new contours on the high spots that I've figured out on a lake that I want to work. You have a more contoured line working on that and breaks the lake down a lot. You definitely find a spot, fish your good times for sure. Don't be driving around. If there's a major coming up and you've got a spot, fish it. Otherwise, in the low times, that's when I'm running, mapping, looking constantly. But the days before, like it's been set around the whole thing is a big, big help. So when you're out there, you're not trying to figure out where to go when you dump the boat in the water. Michael Hansen, Namakagan Area Guide Service, excuse me. <clears throat> But no, pretty much exactly what everybody else has said. I, I hate to be that guy, but I mean, honestly, you gotta look at a map. That's all I do. I have the Navionics app on my phone. When I'm just sitting at home, I'm and I'm just looking at lakes I've never fished. You know, I'm looking at lakes that have muskies in them, and then I'm looking at those lakes on Navionics, and then I'm just breaking them down right off the bat from home. 
I mean, it's kind of like coaching football. I mean, you know, you can throw these plays out, put them on paper, they all look good, but until they work, you don't know. So go with your gut, you know, start in your best percentage spots, and if they're not working, make adjustments uh, and uh, just go from there. This is Herbie, and I'm everywhere. Um, Have you ever picked a new lake? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, when I pick an, uh, a lake that I'm really interested in, and I haven't been on it before. Um, I don't even put take. I put my rods in my rod lockers, and I don't even I don't even bring them out. Okay, I spend the whole day doing nothing but looking everything over, top to bottom. I mark I GPS and 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 waypoint everything that I think is right. And at the same time, I have either a notepad or a map of the lake, and I'm making notations on where I see bait fish, where I find bugs. Where I, you know, especially the, where I see different things like mud lines and stuff like that, and I don't, I will not fish at all when I'm scouting a new lake. And then, and I sit back that night, and I kind of digest everything, and I look at everything, and then, and I usually, I can go out there the next day and surprise myself, and I can usually catch fish. Um, when I, when I, when I fish, regardless if it's great times or not, that I, oh, I'm going to fish because there's some. What I, happens is I never get to it all. I'm always missing something. You know, and most of the lakes that I'm talking about that I'm scouting new are, are, aren't huge lakes or they're smaller sections of big lakes. You know, so if I spend my time the whole course of the day, I get there shortly after daylight and I look it over till dark, by the time I'm done, I think I got a really, really good game plan um, on what I'm going to try and attack the next day and then I bring my rods out and then I fish what I really think is uh, is uh, gonna be the right things I don't know if we got any more questions here Jeff you got a question we got another question here we go yeah we definitely want that's why we have that's, that's what we're doing here otherwise it's gonna be me and Brad and we don't want me and Brad coming up with questions that's no good we've done that for two years uh, so for us weekend warriors, right, we're not on the water a lot. We don't get to know the patterns. Um, a lot of times we're not fishing three to a boat. It might be myself, which is most likely, maybe my kid, maybe him. But I guess the, the question I would say is, what's the best advice you can give a weekend warrior that uh, is by himself? What, what, how do you break down that water if you're not throwing three, three baits and trying to find that pattern? Matt Seifert, Muskie Mercenary Guide Service. Um, well, with a kid, that's the problem, right? So you're like, you want to catch one. So it's kind of the same question as far as like, you want to break it down, but you got a thing. So I think like what Jeff was saying, but just you got to fish those peak times and the rest of the time run around. Or in that case, if I got a kid in the boat and I want to catch one, I don't want to just map a lake for two days because I don't have clients for two days. I have nothing better to do. Um, I would, I guess, if I had to catch a fish that day, I would do kind of what Jeff said, like fish all those key times and then just get to that weed bed right away and mark, like, oh, here's a good weed bed. And I just S turn and mark that outside edge. If you got, with all electronics nowadays too, 360 or live scope, you run that weed edge with perfect without even having to put waypoints down on it. But go do that and fish three weed beds. Um, I don't know how long I should go. If I keep going, no one else would be able to. But we fish three weed beds and nothing happens, then go to the sand and fish sand, or fish the weed edge outside, then fish it inside out. Check the inside weed edge, check the sand, then go to a rock pile and just keep hopping. 
like three at a time. So fish three windblown spots, weeds, rock, sand, fish three calm spots. Um, yeah, just mix it up like that, like break it down into a pattern. If there's no sand on the lake, then it's just weeds. Do I fish them this way? Do I fish the deeper weeds? Do I fish the shallower weeds? Inside weed edge. So, and if you have the right electronics, you don't even need lay waypoints, but laying the waypoints is definitely the best way to do it. If you know you're gonna come back to that lake anyways, and then you know you're not gonna make a mistake. If you see that fishing market, you're gonna know exactly how far away from those waypoints you need to be at sundown, provide a better chance. I like laying waypoints down on the weed edges, but yeah, if I have to catch one, that's what I do. Just mix it up and try to find that pattern immediately of no one else to talk to. Sand, rocks, weeds, whatever it takes, deep open water, casting inside out into the open water. Hold up, hold up, Matt, for one second. So, you know, I'm, you know me, I'm, I'm not on the water all the time. I'm much like these guys here. I'm more weekend warrior. Are you looking to hit more spots, you know, quickly, or are you going to try to narrow the amount of spots you have down and work them more thoroughly? What's, what's the better approach? Um, well, I'm going to go with the key times. Like, if it's any kind of major, minor moon phase, storm coming in, you want to be casting at that point, obviously. So I would just immediately go to that like first weed bed I found. Mark it. What kind of weed is it? I like to get in there and look at them. Like, oh, it's cabbage or it's coontail or it's slop, pond weed, you know. Um, kind of figure that out and then kind of I'll head in and see, oh, here's the inside weed edges in four feet. And I got sand inside. So I'll fish those spots hard and fast, but you got to figure out the baits too. And then if you fish weeds, which most lakes are weed structure, I would assume. Um, the problem is everybody fishes too fast in the weeds. If I fish fast in the weeds, I'm not going to catch anything. I learned that lesson my first couple of years of musky fishing. I'm just, I got to catch one. I got to catch one. And everyone else behind me is catching them because they're going 0.6 and I'm going 1.5. The fish are in the weeds, you got to go slow. So you got to keep the boat at 0.75 or less. You got to work the spot. If you're going to fish it, fish it right, I guess is what I would say. Don't waste your time fishing a spot at 1.5 miles an hour and be like, there's no muskies in that weed bay. Because you had one bait run through there every 40 feet you got to cast. And if you, you and your son are working that spot slowly, you know, if, maybe it might be a fast bait, but you're casting every 10 feet or every 5 feet in that weed bed. Then you're going to know if there's no fish there. And you don't have to come back either, probably. If you're only there for two days and you don't get a follow, why would you go back to that weed bed? Even if it looked juicy. Like, this is an awesome weed bed. Oh, it looks awesome, but I didn't see any muskies. I just keep moving then. Go to the rocks. Try that next. Rocks, you can fish faster anyway, so I'd rather catch them on the rocks my first day on a lake than in the weeds anyways, but if you don't have that option, that's what I'd do, I guess. So I'm not fishing fast necessarily, but I'm just checking multiple spots. Do we need to, we want another question or are we going to keep going though? Dave Shuick, Sunset Glow Guide Service. One of the other things I, I do, it kind of comes back to your first question about breaking down a lake, and you guys touched on a little bit around forage. I like to know what that food chain looks like, right? We all know that there's bugs to starting point, right? But it goes up from there. What, what are the rest of the fish in there that the other fish are eating? And what's the muskies eating that might be in that lake, right? That might narrow down your color spectrum a little bit too on that lake. Um, I just, I, I like to really know what that forage base looks like that, that not only the muskies are eating, but what are the, if there's bass in there, walleye in there, perch, ciscos, whatever, what are they all eating? Uh, all the way down to you know what kind of bugs are in there, whether the minnows that are in there, etc. It just helps me narrow down a little bit on starting point on some colors, perhaps. Jeff Vandermort of Northern Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, so you know everybody's got that's those are all great points. I think we're really this is a hard one to answer because it depends where the lake is, right? If you're you know say it's summer peak, right? It's August, it's hot, it's windy, and you're on vermilion, right? Maybe that's heat or lake of the woods, right? Heat, wind, rock, speed, blades. That's what you're looking for. Northern Wisconsin. 
you know, it's going to be maybe a little different. Deep main lake weed points, ripping big rubber, maybe big blades, something more aggressive. It's going to kind of depend on where you are, what time of year you're at. So it's really hard to say like where to start necessarily. But like, like these guys said, you know, going to the main, the juicy looking spots is where you want to start. And going back to my earlier point is just about not getting cute with it. I think you just got to do that. That's the only way to really do it. But when you're doing it, you have to also, I would say if you have two people in the boat, whether you have that first person is a good fisherman or not, whoever's, depends how your boat's set up, right? But whoever has the access to the electronics needs to be extra diligent while you're fishing through these spots. You know, it's one of those things where I, I, it's a little bit of a luxury for the people that come in my boat. I'm not usually casting. It's a full-time job, in my opinion, watching those electronics, making sure that my guys are on the best bite possible and, and positioning that boat in the best way possible I can for them to succeed, but also having a trained eye watching those electronics for the little things that you might miss, whether this part of the weed line had a good amount of bait set in it, whether, I, okay, I can pick out a muskie that's sitting in the weeds with my side image here, or, hey, you just had a lazy follow that broke off 30 feet away from the boat that I saw in you know perspective mode or something you know those little things like that are going to give you those little clues as to when to come back to because any of those fish that you see in turn and go back to a spot that you have a much higher percentage chance of catching that fish than the next 10 fish that don't move for you or that move and spook and go out to the you know swim under the boat and leave and go to the basin if you're able to locate even just one of those fish with somebody being super diligent with the electronics and watching that while it can also be fishing. It just depends whether all your electronics are up front that you're geared up for a solo guy and everybody behind you is kind of bat and clean up. Or if you're the guy in the back rigged like a guide boat where, okay, the guys in front aren't necessarily worried about electronics because the guy in the back's got four screens that he's looking at and can see everything. So if you can even locate one of those fish and try, if your goal is to put a fish in the bag that day on new water, locating even one of those fish and then if you come back at a key time or converting that fish right away, going back to the earlier, hey, like Steve said, it's an aggressive fish, we go back again and try it. Or a lazy fish that turned back, we come back at a key time and try it then. But having somebody diligently watching those electronics can really make the difference between that one fish in the bag on new water or nothing at all. And when it breaks down to it in times of the essence, I think that's that's really my best approach. All right, hold, hold up one second, Luke. We're going to change it up on you. We're going to throw a curveball. Brad, we're going to get another question over here. We got one more question here. It's kind of uh, it's a little different question, it's but it's a, a good new, one. It's the new host of Backlash Podcast. <laughs> um, yep, new host here. Um, okay, so I want to hear since we have so many guides, I want to hear everyone's personal best and what lure you caught it on. Well, that's that's an interesting question. See, there's a reason why she's taking over. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, we'll start with Herbie. Talking personal best. Your personal best. Personal best in my boat was 56 inches. Um, on a bulldog. Um, what color? Black. My favorite color. <laughs> Here's Michael. All right, I have to. I have to say a lake out of Minnesota. Um, I've been to Minnesota now five, four times, and have five fifties under my belt. So I like that place quite a bit. But um, it was a 53 and a half on a Lee Lures flap tail at night. First hour of ever fishing the lake it was awesome and the boat right next to us got a 52 and a half like at the same exact time i mean those fish were going i can't see the lake somewhere in minnesota one of the ten thousand you have around here no it was plantation hat right on brad just got me in here so jeremy smith uh the biggest one i ever caught i was not fishing for them a 57 inch on a four inch grub Fishing for smallmouth, so I feel like it doesn't even count. <laughs> on a muskie, it was 53 inches. Yep, yep. Uh, well, I've caught several of them like that. Sucker, big bucktail, spinnerbait. I had a big one at Herbie's when I was a kid. That was on a Fudali's hog spin. 
Um, yeah, so a bunch of them in that zone. Uh, DJ Hinderland, Muskie Guides. I kind of feel like uh, I'm going to get uh, outclassed here. <laughs> Biggest personal for me is 48 on a single single number seven blade, running it over weeds. Bigger have been in my boat, but personally, yeah, it's that's where I'm at. So I fish northern Wisconsin. Fish northern Wisconsin, so I don't have these 58 inch muskies at Roman, Minnesota area. So, but yeah, they're there, and I, I'll eventually get it. But yeah, single number seven, June. Just early, big fish was wanted to eat. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Luke Swanson, living the dream guide service. I have a 54 on a fly. Well, la dee da. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. That's a great answer. That's a hell of a fish on a fly. Um, Jeff Vandermortel, Northern Wisconsin. Uh, my personal best is a 54, and that was on a Lake X uh, toad. And then. Uh, yeah, that would be that's my personal best. Biggest in my boat, or most notable in my boat, was a 52-inch Tiger, and that was on a double 10 homemade bucktail, crappie pattern. Personal best is 55 uh, by 28. That was on a walleye pro dog pounder. Got a couple 55s on cowgirls too, but not one that fat. All right, Brad. I think we should switch it up here. Let's. Uh, so that half got one question before let's go this half so i had somebody ask me about like july cold fronts what would be you know a tactic i guess you could use you're, you're on a trip summer trip you plan something and inevitably you're gonna get hit with a cold front let's talk about july cold fronts well we'll give the mic to herbie first uh july cold fronts i'd sleep in all day and start at dark but <laughs> but uh you know it depends a lot too on what kind of lake it is uh water clarity and stuff but generally a really bad cold front that drops a lot of water temp you know even four or five degrees is a lot to a fish um, I, I will usually it, you know the easiest fish to me are fish that have buried back in the weeds and and rooting them out out of the thick weeds with with a single spin spinner bait dragging it down through the base of the weeds or something like that um, the fish that drop off the break um, and, and, and suspend out off the break during a cold front are usually tougher for me. So I usually look for fish that have um, retreated to a heavy cover and then pick it apart and beat them to snot out of them until they give in. And then, of course, you gotta, it's not a time, a July cold front, to quit at 4 o'clock and it's time for Miller time. It's time to, you maybe get your only shot right at the last 15 minutes of daylight or into dark. And I think that's really key uh, when you got a cold front in the middle of the summer pattern. You know, I've, uh, I've spent some time in the boat with Larry Dahlberg. And um, I mean, one of the things earlier on in the year when we woke up in the morning you, and it was cold, we wouldn't get started till later on in the day. And that's because, you know, from my understanding that these fish, especially the big ones, take a lot, a lot of time for them to acclimate to that water temperature. The smaller fish, it, they can get going a lot faster than the bigger fish. The more surface area they have, the harder it is for them to acclimate to that same water temperature. So kind of like what Herbie was saying, we go back to them later on in the evening, digging them out of weeds. Um, I tend to throw a lot of top waters during that time too. Loud chopper baits, something that's gonna really rattle their feathers, get them uh, kind of angry and, you know, go attack that bait but um, other than that spinner baits working those slow through the slop 
and um, just kind of paying attention to the water temperature when it does kind of, I don't know, equilibrate. Is that a word? <laughs> I mean, it might as well be. I don't know for sure. You talk to homeschool Matt about this and see. <laughs> I, was, I was from public school, so that might be something. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, I think Herbie got to nail that. I mean, when it's cold, it seems like the fish just like to lay down and they like to get in cover, right? They're hard to see on electronics at a big cold front. And uh, so to me, it's grinding and it's making contact with cover. And the other thing is, is bookends. So talked about the last bite of the evening, but also it seems like from, from my experience, when you get a cold front coming through, being out there like really early in the morning, that first day of the cold front, if you, you can often get a window like right at sunrise, and then by the time everybody's coming down to the dock, it's already over. So there's a really good window typically early. But if they're in the weeds, I still love throwing an original 10-inch floating suet, getting that bait hung up on a plant. I mean, it's an old school Doug Johnson, Dick Pearson deal, just cracking that, getting it hung up on a plant, shaking it, shaking it, shaking it, let it float up, pop it through. And you do catch a lot of fish that way, of course. Uh, the other thing is if the fish are on rocks, I don't think people throw crankbaits that much anymore in a depth rater, a jointed depth rater, grinding a depth rater on rocks. I mean, my time on Leech Lake, I've caught so many big fish doing that and Canadian lakes, it's just been, so contact with cover to me is one of the secrets when it's a cold front anyway. So my deal is almost the exact opposite and they're, they're what, what the, these guys have mentioned so far is so much based on the environment, right? And I'm Austin Wiggerman, so um, where I guide a lot in the southern range in Illinois, the, the July cold front to me is like game on. By then, the water temps are peaking right around 80 degrees. Um, and by then, the, the summer patterns, the deeper shad, uh, you know, fish fall in the shad out in the basins really have settled down, really gotten deeper. And, and come the July cold fronts, uh, I, you know, if I was to launch the boat and the temps dropped eight, 10 degrees, you'd think you'd be uh, fishing that classic shallow water weed pattern, getting in uh, thick cover. What I see is the exact opposite. The basin fish, almost like, very similar to post-spawn, super high riding. They're all taking advantage of the cooler water that's affecting from top down. And all those big fish in the basin have slid up and basically just risen in the water column. And it's just shallow running baits, fast, active, just straight over the top of the basin. DJ Hinterland Muskie Heads. Uh, July cold fronts, my favorite go to lure, like Herbie and I said, tight up, super shallow in the weeds. I love using a small boiler maker and slow rolling it over the weeds, keeping it up, going slow. You've got the body in the water, you've got blades. I actually do a modification with the other, my brother in law, who's the other guide. We put a rear flap tail on the boiler maker so you've got this constant spinning and you've got a flip and a flap in there so you've kind of almost got like a flap tail but you got something that's moving a little bit more through the water getting more of a reaction strike not letting them see it as much but not burning it at the same point either other than that you know keeping things high in the water but working tight in weeds super shallow rocks inside weed edges if there's some sand on the inside sometimes those fish move even in the sands holding more heat than the weeds are especially on a sunny day and hope for the best all right, Luke, you keep getting screwed over because we keep changing right at you. So I'm sure you had plenty of time to think about it. But I want you to ask a question on one one thing you want the guides to know. A question for the guys? Yeah, you got to have a question for the guides. Yeah, no kidding. You could have asked me two questions. No, 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 that wouldn't be, that That detracts from the fun of this. Um, uh, oh, 
gosh. If you were going to pick one spot the rest of your life to only fish the spot or kind of spot, if it's weeds, if it's rocks, if it's a certain spot on a lake that you could only fish mud, if you're going to fish one thing, an A spot, a B spot on a lake, what is it? Oh man, that's a good question. Depends where the lake is. I mean, if I could pick one bite that I really, really enjoy, that wind, speed, rocks, heat, peak summer, something like a lake of the woods or some sort of a shield lake. I mean, it doesn't get much more fun than that. And then the other side of that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double dip, Jeff. I see that look and I know it, but I know I'd take that because, <laughs> I know I'd take that because that I can take probably longer in my life. But if it wasn't that, snapping big rubber, summer peak, ripping pounders, ripping magnum rubber as hard as I can mostly a weed edge bite and just snapping the living daylights out of it because there's nothing better than figure eight fish on blades are awesome but when that line slacks on big rubber is just nothing like that for me that's must, my favorite must I be some with the wisconsin guys you guys <laughs> always got to take two answers you got you, you gotta, and jensen dude. jensen did it last episode you're doing it this episode you can't just give me one answer luke wanted one answer that's what happens man you know you burn blades like you're from this minnesota is, this and is two like episodes in a row you're disqualified <laughs> Uh, Dave Shuick, Sunset Glow Guide Service. I, I like weeds a lot, and so I try to find the deepest weeds I can. And then I would, uh, that deeper weeds with maybe a little bit higher water column above those weeds gives me a lot of options to work a lot of different kinds of baits. That's what I like. I like options, and I really like weeds. So I look for deep weeds. Uh, Matt Seifert? Uh, I, would say, I was going to say windblown rocks, but I'm going to take September. Inside weed edge, sand, burning bucktails, and topwaters. Uh, DJ Hintelanos, guys. I would say summer, slow rolling or speeding topwater on a weed edge. Sunset, moon's coming up. I mean, take the view and the fish, watching the fish coming out of the water. I could live the rest of my life watching that. Oh boy, well I would have to say, this is Jeremy Smith, I would go with summer speed. I just love throwing a bucktail fast and just seeing how fast they can really go. I mean, I just think that's the cool, coolest thing. Um, so a little bucktail going fast is my hands down favorite way to catch them. Michael Hansen here, um, same with Jeff. I like ripping the biggest, baddest rubber available over green cabbage. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, there's ways around that. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's nothing like a big rubber bite, and, um, and you can cover so much water. It's very similar to working a fast bucktail if you work them fast. So there's just something about it, and it just gets me every single time, and I, I'm itching for June already. Okay, Herbie here. Um, something that I absolutely live for that the juices just fire me up on is... I get a big wind coming out of the west, northwest, for a day or two, and I look for that edge of the basin where I got multiple, multiple um, structures and narrows leading into another basin. When that happens, the current that's created going through these multiple structures and, and current edges is where I have consistently seen had those magic days where you see multiple big fish and they're wild and it just seems to be when I see that I mean I'll, I'll drive 45 miles to get to it you know because it's just something very special when that sh stuff gets all put together like that you know it's that whole fish 
spots that might only have one fish on them here and there, all of a sudden in conditions like that, might have multiple big fish. And they're usually active, very active. All right, Brad, we're going to swing it over to Matt. As long as Matt came up with a question, I had to give him a, you know, a, a pre, uh, I, had to, I had to give him a preview early and ask him about it because, you know, Luke's not homeschooled, so he had to do it on the fly because I expected more out of him. Uh, Luke's question was way cooler than what I'm coming up with. I'm coming up with, like, dumb ones that are going to take 20 minutes to answer. Uh, how about... How about do you troll? Uh, Jeff, see ya. If, if you <laughs> if you do troll, uh, what's your speed and favorite bait? Dave Shuick, Sunset Glow Guide Service. Um, I actually don't troll very often, so I'll leave it at that. I do a lot of casts in. I'll do spot spot stalk and cast. Um, that's mostly what I'm doing. Not okay, well, as much trolling. Well, let me ask so. you: What's the if since you don't troll, which it's not a bad I, thing. I do it once in a while. What's once the reason while, you don't troll? Um, I often get clients that really find it boring, honestly. Yeah, and which is fair. So, I mean, yeah. they find it boring, and I'm like, okay, well, I, my my boat centers around the client. So if if they find it boring and they're not going to be happy, I sure as hell am not going to troll with them. Absolutely. So totally understand. Yeah, it's a it's a good question, but I'm just not really much of a troller. In the instances where we do troll, um, again, as as you had mentioned, typically it's just not what my customers are coming for. It's not really something that our area is, is well known for, and it's just not something a lot of people are seeking out. In the instances where we have done it, I do prefer if you can do a trolling where you're like like jerk trolling, like actually ripping baits and stuff where you're going along. It's pretty incredible to feel fish crush a bait in your hand like that. Obviously, it's not something you're going to do for ten hours on end, but. That is one thing in, in trolling that it's pretty hard to replicate that casting. That is a pretty cool bite. Um, and that's, uh, you can contour troll like that and rip, especially as you're contacting weeds along that and just giving big long rips or short pops, something like, you know, big jakes or grandmas, something like that, big minnow baits. Um, but outside of that, I mean, our trolling is pretty limited. Maybe I'll be scouting and stuff. I don't do it a ton, but somewhere in that four to five if you can, or a little bit slower if you're ripping because then you got a lot of force there. Uh, Luke Swanson, when I do troll, it would probably be like 3.8, kind of like that number. 3.8 to 3.9, I really like a ZM Custom crankbait or a 10-inch matlock. And then I love having a rod 15 feet out the back and ripping a beaver right behind it in that prop wash. And like clients that don't like trolling and it's productive or we need to find where you know open water fish are to go cast at them and get a program for the day having that person sitting there ripping and feeling like they're doing something and not just sitting in a chair sleeping and eating too much and getting fat like give them something to do and they can trade off and do it that way as dj here once i don't troll much either i do a little bit when clients you know kind of a whole day thing we break in i run three two to three eight most of the time I've got a couple headlocks, a couple big slammers, grandma or two, and we go for it. But I'm definitely not the, <laughs> I'm not the guy to go get the hot trolling bite from. We, so, but yeah, I run 3.2 to 3.8, depending temperature-wise and that, three rods. And I also do the third rod down rods right at the edge of the prop wash, always. And we switch it up from blades to just something violent back there that's going to go after it. All right, Jeremy Smith here. I love trolling and I spend a lot of time doing it. So I would say I don't have a speed, man. I just, it, it all depends. So I run a tiller boat. I love open water trolling, but also contour trolling and speed is a trigger, right? So, I mean, I'm, sometimes I'll put my boat in neutral and I'll, I'll get ripping five miles an hour. But typically, you know, you're running three, two to three, eight. That's a pretty standard procedure, but you're always turning. So I've got a 
tiller boat specifically for this. So it's, I mean, so many fish come on corners, so you don't really know the math on what an outside board's doing on a, on a corner. It might be flying, and sometimes your inside board hits when it's slow. So to me, changing speed is really the key to catching a lot of fish, trolling, and moving the, making the baits do different things. Stopping, letting them rise up, speeding up, diving them down, making corners. So it's all those triggers that you can do, you know, when the rod's not in your hand. But I also love having a rod in my hand. So if I'm ever trolling, I have one in the back that's in my hand that's a short line that you're, you're working with, messing with. But getting those board baits to move differently is a big deal. And I would say my favorite bait would have to be a 10-inch headlock. I've just caught so many big fish on that bait over the years that it's, um, it's one of my go. I've always got a couple headlocks out. So, Michael Anson here. Uh, I don't troll very often, just like most other people in northwestern Wisconsin, but when I do, it's always late fall. If I can't get suckers and it's way too cold to cast, and I'm always, always trolling 12-inch matlocks or 13-inch grandmas. Nothing else. It was fish up in northwestern Wisconsin, love those big baits. They push out a tremendous amount of water, and they just seem to do the best for me when I do go trolling. Herbie here. I think uh, Jeremy hit a real point, important part there on um, as far as changing, you know, creating different speeds by, you know, always doing a lot of turns and stuff like that. Uh, um, Another type of trolling that I really love to do that a lot of people don't do because they don't know how to do it over the top of shallow mid-lake reefs and stuff. Stuff that sometimes I'm just cringing because I'm wondering if I'm going to hit the lower unit. But uh, I use I, 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 made a, I made a couple baits up out of a modified Brad's Hurricanes um, and I added four ounces to the middle at about three and a half at 80 feet back they'll get down about eight feet so if the if the reef is four or five feet I may only have 40 50 feet but that blade that bait it was is was unbelievable as far as uh, catching big fish that people really never they never see a trolled bait when they're up there and uh, and not only that but it thumps so hard that my rod tip was like I had a big crankbait on so as I come off of the bar even, I'm not sure so much if the fish followed it off when I make a turn to it, or if because it thumped so much, the fish were even coming up as far as 18, 20 feet after it. It was a, it, it was a pattern that I've had that I've caught a lot of really big fish on with people that couldn't cast very well. And I could cover a lot of stuff that other people, um, and it was a total different presentation that people that were casting them reefs were showing them. And I usually liked somewheres between 3.2 and 3.5. You know, there's something that you hear a lot about really high speeds of 5 and 6 miles an hour and all that kind of stuff. I, I found over the years that I might catch more fish going over 4, but I catch a lot bigger fish going under 4. Um, most of my big fish have come somewhere in the mid threes, unless the water's really cold. Then I might even be going 2.5, 2.2 even. So it depends a lot on the water temperature and the kind of baits you're using. As far as hard baits, the, 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 the headlocks and matlocks are awesome, but the 13-inch grandma has accounted for tons of huge fish for me. Tons of huge fish for me. Um, it's one of my favorites if, if, if I'm in a uh, system that has big forage. The has Cisco's, the tulipies that are in that 20-inch range, or or whitefish. Uh, that 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 10-inch gram is deadly. Um, the headlocks. I've caught a lot of fish on your 
straight out of the box jake, man. A straight out of the box jake will catch a lot of fish. It hardly gets snagged. It'll bounce off of stuff. Um, so basically, I don't go real fast. I like to, in Canada where I troll, we can only have one rod a person. So I very seldom ever have a rod and a rod holder. I have the rod in the client's hands. They're working the rod the whole time, and it creates a lot of, besides your turning, you're creating all kinds of different changes of speed. Just like when you're working jerk baits or ripping minnow baits, you're, you're trying to create different speeds and directions of the baits and stuff, and that's what I try to emulate when I'm trolling also. All right, well, I think that's going to wrap up our guide portion. We want to thank all of our guides for taking time out of their schedules tonight, come out and talk uh, musky fishing with us. I think we had at least three that have never been on a podcast, so we're going to add three more people to our list of people that we should get on for uh, full episodes. You know, we're, we're going to do this again next week. We're going to just talk trolling in northern Wisconsin, I think, based on what I found with the uh, northern Wisconsin guys. They, uh, they really seem to have a lot to offer up on that, so that'll make for a really interesting podcast when we're live in Wausau next weekend. You know, so we're going to do the same thing next weekend at the Wisconsin Muskie Expo. We'll uh, get a whole new different group of guides, and of course I was kidding about the uh, trolling in northern Wisconsin. They're, that's not going to go over real well. But, um, you know, about 7 o'clock out of the Team Rhino Outdoors booth, if you're listening to this episode and you got time to, you know, hit up Wausau and check that out, that'd be great. You know, again, I want to thank all of our guides for taking time out of our schedule. I also want to thank the uh, handful of people that came out to uh, check out this episode. But before we wrap it up, Brad, we want to talk about a couple of new products that are available to muskie anglers, stuff that they might not know about. One of them we've definitely talked about on the podcast before. So, anyways, I will... Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to edit that out. We're not. We're not gonna let her back. Get him out of here. His 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 portion's over with. But anyways, we want to talk uh, new products for a minute. Brad, why don't you talk about the first one? Yeah, definitely. Uh, something that we definitely want to touch on is the new Aftec product. And we got Nathan here. I'm gonna let him kind of do his thing. This is Nathan with Aftec uh, owner. Uh, I partnered up with Aquatraction, and we launched last June to do full carpet deletes. So what I designed is making fiberglass hatches for fiberglass boats. Um, what that entails is making molds, making the hatches itself, installing, get rid of, getting rid of all the carpet. And so um, kind of when it started, I had a really bad experience with a customer. I refurbished the lids in a 06 Ranger 619. Um, so that kind of gave me the drive to, why don't we take this bad experience and actually learn from it and fix the problem at hand. So taking these fiberglass hatches, removing the carpet, you have really big gaps. Some of the hatches are swollen, they're shot, they just need to be replaced. So I took that initiative and that drive and actually made new hatches. Um, so now we can take a full boat, get all the carpet out of it, put new hatches, closing, on, closing off all the gaps, reducing the weight, increasing the strength, and then putting aqua traction on the entire decks. One of the things that uh, here at the Minnesota show, I mean, when this airs, it's going to be past that. But it's definitely something to check thing, check out. You know, in the in the future, if you want to have a look at the product, why don't you tell us how we can get in touch with you? Absolutely, you can either get in contact with me um, through my website, social media, uh, through Aftec. Otherwise, you can contact Aqua Traction. Um, and then we can we can definitely get your boat rigged up. Where else, Nathan, might they be able to see the product? Uh, are you doing any more shows after this podcast airs? Yep. So we have uh, our whole dealer network really pushes to help 
us out. And so um, our dealerships in Green Bay, um, they've been really pushing for it hard. Uh, we're getting actually some southern dealers set up with Aftec um, hatches, so it's really growing business right now. All right, Brad, and one other new product we want to talk about is Bahio sunglasses. Obviously, you and I have talked about them on the podcast a handful of times, and we have the uh, rep from Bahio out here today. Let's uh, talk to Jeff Westgard about Bahio. You know, some people might not, you know, know what, what do I need a pair of Bahio sunglasses over my $20 Walmart sunglasses? What does Bahio have to offer? You know, first, Jeff, before we go into that whole thing, and, and I let Jeff talk about this, um, <laughs> he reached out to me about a year ago. I was a coastal wearer for 25, 30 years, and uh, the first thing I noticed was, number one, weight. They're lighter on your face, um, and I'm still wearing glass. I wear glass lens. So definitely weight is one consideration. The other thing is they remarkably give you more clarity looking into the water. And I'd wanted to say that. And the cool thing is, is I'm not paid by Bahia or anything like that. But the beauty of it is, is somebody that's worn these sunglasses for 25, 30 years, different brands, and you switch to Bahio, it, it blew my mind. I'll give the mic to Jeff and, and be quiet now. Well, one second, Brad. I'm kind of the opposite of that. I actually cut checks to Bahio, so <laughs> you know, it's, they're not paying me at all. Right. Well, first, I've been told to wish you a happy birthday. There's no truth to that rumor, except for the big balloons that are flying above my, my booth right now. It'll be too late for everybody by the time they see it or hear this podcast. But yes, it is my birthday, in fact. All I'm right. 31 years old. All right. <laughs> All right, Jeff, go ahead. Let's, uh, let's hear what you have to say about Bahio sunglasses. Well, thank you for the intro there. Just thanks for having me on. Um, so I'll give you a little background. Bahio's been around as a, as a manufacturer for a few years now, two years. Um, it's a lot of people that left Costa that are basically behind Bahio. Um, what they're really doing is they're improving even upon just the technology from a lot of other brands. Blue light blocking is a big thing that a lot of companies are saying, and I'm working with them to try to come out with more kind of scientific stat stuff they can put behind it, but there's even more blue light blocking with ours that's why you, when you put them on you just it feel very relaxed it sounds ridiculous but it's true um tagline they have is clearest lens on the planet and i really really think they're they are they're awesome um, because they're an independently owned company they're wanting to really focus on just superb customer service um, satisfaction is their goal so I just can't say enough positive things about their glasses. The fun thing doing shows and just selling their glasses in general is that I don't hear any negative, I hear just positive and that's just really, really fun. So the product is outstanding. It really is. I don't know if that answered. That answers what we need to know. We just wanted to make people aware of the product. You know, of course, by the time people hear this, it's going to be a little bit too late. You know, you had a booth out here at the show, and obviously, I'm assuming you've talked to a handful of people already today to, you know, just get the awareness out of the brand. Yeah, it's not too late though, Jeff. I mean, you offer them. Team Rhino has them. Um, you get the opportunity to try them on, see what you think, the fit and feel, and then. Like, like Jeff said, I mean, it's incredible. It's almost like your eyes relax with them. So, well, and if you, you know, if you come out to the show, if you're listening to this, you know, on Wednesday, and you, you know, you're coming out to the Wausau show, we have a display of them in our booth at the Wausau show. 
you're not obligated to buy if you touch them you know if you want to try them on and see what they're all about see if brad you know brad is actually living up to the hype on these glasses um you know come on check them out that way well and a big thing too is the, the fit and i have it set up to where i can and i've done it enough times where I can put a Bales Beach on just about anyone and I can just tell right from there. Do we need to go up bigger or smaller? I mean, it, there's, and it's nice to have them all laid out to be able to just really try them all. Because I know what it's like when you're looking at them and it's like, ah, do I, should I just make the move and just buy one? Or do I want to really try? And it's always best if you can try all the options. So Absolutely. That's my yep. plug for that. I think uh, one, of the, one of the key things when you're looking for sunglasses if you're looking for sunglasses to fish in, you definitely want to make sure that there's light illumination around the lens. And so that that frame needs to fit snug against your cheeks. I don't like any sunlight coming up from the bottom. I don't really like it coming from the side. And, and the reason for that is if you're squinting at all, that's not the proper fit. So you need to find a glasses that fit your face properly. I mean, that's a huge part of it. Yep, that is a huge part of it. And like one thing that's been interesting, you know, we have a lot of new, uh, newer styles that have come out with like hinges. Honestly, it's been interesting to just see people's reactions to that. Most of the time people really like it, but some people really don't. I mean, and that's just a little thing I've learned from here, all pointing to the fit. The fit is huge. Some people really like that anchored feel without the hinges, the spring hinges. Um, I don't know. So just stop on by and it's always good to just try them all on all right i don't think we have anything else to you know add as far as uh, products no guides you know once again brad we want to thank everybody for the support of the podcast i know i heard about it you know by at least five people today you know about how they listen to the podcast they listen every wednesday and makes their their week go by faster or whatever you know obviously it was great to have people in attendance this week you know we have at least i would say 10 which is you know 10 more than we had in milwaukee and you know, hopefully maybe next year we'll grow it even a little bit more and possibly we'll see some people out in Wausau. I understand it's later on a Friday night, so, you know, people, if they're at the show, they don't necessarily want to hang out all day long to listen to us yap about something that they can listen to on a Wednesday anyways. But it's always great to get that interaction, and that's really, you know, what we do. We're here to try to help the anglers catch more muskies. The guides that are on these panels are dedicated to helping, you know, everybody catch more muskies, so it's just great to see the interaction in this episode. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Uh, involvement's always good, and uh, we definitely had it here in Minnesota. Hopefully the noise isn't so bad on the backside of this, but uh, there's a bigger crowd than there was when we did it in Milwaukee, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, we want to, like I said, we you know say it every single week, we truly do appreciate everybody that takes time out of their schedule to listen to our podcast. You know, we truly appreciate all the people that stood here for an hour and a half or hour and 15 minutes, whatever. You know, again, listening to us, yep. Yeah, you know, the one thing I will say is that, you know, if you do appreciate what we do on the podcast, you know, check out our businesses. Again, if you want to support Team Rhino Outdoor, Outdoors, go to www.teamrhinooutdoors.com. If you want to support Muskie Mayhem Tackle, go to www.muskiemayhemtackle.com. I guess if you want to support us both, you could just buy a custom-colored mini grenade this year, and you'd be able to catch some muskies and support both at the same time. But, you know, we, we truly did want to give back to the muskie community with this podcast. You and I uh, dedicate, a, you know, whatever, 15 minutes a week to get this thing out 
and you know for for very little return we don't have any uh you know any sponsors nobody's cutting us checks i do think somewhere along the line i got a free hummingbird t-shirt so that was pretty sweet you know <laughs> two and a half hours of or two and a half years of work or 200 episodes or 210 whatever we've done for one free t-shirt is pretty awesome i mean I'm, we're almost like sponsored by them at this point yeah that was a really nice deal <laughs> yeah for sure absolutely. maybe it was your birthday present uh, maybe no i got some <laughs> balloons and i think i got a cake too for my birthday so and uh, you know i gotta thank your wife for that which she didn't even <laughs> make an appearance she's been in a quarter talking all day uh anyways once again we want to thank everybody for putting up with us for another episode and we'll find everybody again with a new live one again next week wednesday <laughs>